Hey friends, Paul here. You know, one of the first series I did way back last summer, it seems like such a long time ago, was a series entitled Darwin, the Bible, Science, and Theology. And many of you reached out to me after that series and said it was really helpful in helping you sort through some of the questions you had about Genesis 1 through 3, questions about how to deal with the cognitive dissonance that you experience as you try to be a reasonable person. You want to have a high view of science, yet you don't know how to reconcile the sciences with the way that you've been taught to read the Bible. If you're like me and you had really poor science training growing up as a Christian, you might find with a new appreciation for science, a higher view of the sciences, also comes a whole bunch of questions as you begin to try to wrap your mind around the scientific explanations that we have today for the diversity of life on our planet, the age of the earth, etc. So I thought it would be a good idea to bring someone on the program who's an expert in this subject. My guest today is Dr. Jim Stump. Jim is the vice president of BioLogos, which is a nonprofit organization founded by one of the top biologists in the world, Francis Collins, who was the head of the Human Genome Project. He's also served as the director of the National Institutes of Health for both Obama and Trump administrations. And this nonprofit was founded by Francis Collins and others to invite the church and the world to see, quote, the harmony between science and biblical faith as they present an evolutionary understanding of God's creation. So I wanted to talk to Dr. Jim Stump today about some of the common theological and even scientific questions that emerge as people accept an evolutionary understanding of creation. So I hope you enjoy my conversation today with Dr. Jim Stump. Well, Jim, thanks for joining us in this conversation today. Before we kind of get into the questions that I have and some of the listeners have, uh, I'd love to hear a little bit about you and your own journey into this world. You are the vice president of BioLogos, so maybe you could tell us a little bit about your own journey, maybe even on the academic side, what got you into, I mean, I, you are Dr. Jim Stump, which comes at a price, right? <laughs> so maybe you could tell us a little bit about that background and tell us a little bit about what the specific work that BioLogos does. Sure. Yeah, my uh, kids, when they were younger and had friends over and uh, would sometimes say, my dad's a doctor, but not the kind that helps people. So we have to make that caveat up front. I got into this work through philosophy. My uh, Actually, my undergraduate degree was in science education, so I did math and science there. And my wife and I, after I graduated, we went off on the mission field to uh, Sierra Leone, West Africa, where we both taught in a, in a missionary school. School. And there I started doing a lot of reading for the first time uh, more seriously in apologetics and even literature that, that was religiously tinged in nature and really got interested in philosophy. And so when we came back, I went to grad school in philosophy, uh, focused on the philosophy of science, ended up doing my, my uh, PhD dissertation 
in kind of the history and philosophy of science, how philosophy and science interacted with each other uh, throughout the scientific revolution and then into today. And that always kind of oriented me toward really being interested in how science and religion interact and influence each other. I grew up in a, in a very traditional conservative Christian Christian home, um, grew up in the church, and uh, yet my dad uh, was originally trained as a science teacher, like a junior high science teacher. He ended up being an administrator for most of his career, but I think that orientation never never felt to me, it never felt to me growing up like there was some massive conflict between science and the faith that was very real to us in our lives. And so we were encouraged to ask questions and to, to think about things. And so uh, when I was doing philosophy and got a job at the same institution that I had gone to as an undergraduate, I uh, became interested in my scholarly work in pursuing questions in science and religion uh, more specifically. So uh, did a couple of books and wrote some articles in that territory. And then I got involved with Biologos in uh, 2013 when they were looking for somebody with philosophy and theology background and expertise to help in curating some of the resources that they produce online. And that started off as a part-time gig for me. And then in 2015 became a full-time thing. So since 2015, I've been been full-time with Biologos and working in this space of science and religion and really, really enjoy it and find it very valuable. Quick story, you know, how Jim and I got connected. I'd actually, I have a list of people that I go, I'd love to reach out to them, have a conversation with them. And I go, boy, I'd, you know, I've been thankful for the work of BioLogos. I'm going to reach out to Francis Collins. I know this is going to be a pipe dream. I mean, he's, you know, the, we're currently the director of the National Institutes of Health. I'm sure he's a busy guy. He's served in both Obama and Trump administrations. You know, he was the head of the Human Genome Project. I'll just throw a flyer out there. And Francis was gracious enough. I, he emailed me back. I wasn't even expecting a response email. You know, the email address I found was via like a government website. <laughs> I threw it out there. I said, well, we'll see what comes of this. And he was gracious enough to get back to me within a couple hours. I, I mean, which is better than my email response time. And I'm nobody. <laughs> and uh, he was gracious enough to introduce me to you. Uh, and so I'm, I'm really, really thankful. I'm thankful that we've got to, to connect. Um, I'm us, hesitant to yeah. uh, say this to yeah. uh, your listeners, but that's pretty typical of Francis. He is <laughs> remarkable in uh, the correspondence that he keeps up and the response times that he has. Not, it's not like he doesn't have anything else to be doing at the moment. Well, I know. I was blown away. He's super gracious and he loves interacting with people. And uh, particularly when it comes to this topic that is so near and dear to his heart. So, Well, listeners to this program, Jim, if they've already gone through some of my previous science and theology episodes, which uh, I did a series last summer on that, kind of taking listeners maybe through my own journey, my, my journey of growing up in a uh, young earth creationist perspective, very dogmatic. In fact, I, I shared with people in my middle school Bible classes, we would watch, you know, Ken Ham lectures and interviews with Dr. Carl Baugh, and we were being prepared for heading off to secular university, very sort of like God's not dead sort of scenario, right? Where if we didn't defend our faith, which included this particular interpretation of Genesis, 
you know, that some atheist professor out there was just going to ransack us, destroy our, our faith, and then we'd end up worshiping Satan by the time we were done with college. That's that's <laughs> kind of what I felt like. And I shared a little bit with people in that those previous episodes about my own journey. And part of that included as I got done with university and and started teaching Bible classes and, and trying to improve my own hermeneutic and my ability to read the scriptures that I started to realize the way I had been reading Genesis or I've been taught to read Genesis 1 through 3 was through a particular interpretive lens that was very modern, actually. And so uh, for listeners that uh, have gone through that, um, today I, I don't intend to like necessarily unpack Genesis 1 through 3, the exegesis of that. Um, you know, listeners, if you haven't listened to those episodes, you can go back and do that. But I do think for a lot of people who go through a journey like myself, they uh, begin to have dealt with the sort of cognitive dissonance that they experience by, in my case, it felt like I was always needing to be aware of some sort of global science conspiracy to destroy my faith, that all of these academics in all of these you know, ivory towers were out there with some sort of agenda. And once I got past that, it was a very relieving and freeing experience that I I could uh, include in my own journey of faith, a appreciation for general revelation, for God's gift of revealing himself in the sciences. But simultaneously, I know from my own experience and people that I've talked to that once they start that new journey, there's a new set of theological questions that can emerge as they perhaps maybe accept the evolutionary explanation for the diversity of life on our planet when uh, the questions emerge about, boy, we've had extinction, many, several extinction-level events in the Earth's history. It brings up a host of questions, and that's why I'm eager to pick your brain as a specialist on these sorts of questions to see from your perspective and the perspective of the people working at Biologos how you would answer those. So are you, are you ready to, some of these come from myself, some of them come from listeners that have submitted questions. Are you ready to go into them here? Yeah, let me <laughs> give one quick preface in that yeah. regard in that uh, I want people to hear for sure that it's not Biologos's primary objective to get everybody to right. accept evolution and believe just right. like we do. Right. Right. If I could say it a little differently, it's our primary objective, perhaps to get everybody to accept that it's okay that we accept evolution, right? That it is a legitimate position that Christians who take their faith seriously, who take scripture seriously, can reconcile that with a view like this. We Christians disagree about a lot of stuff. I hope that people can hear that we agree on the essentials and that Biologos 2 is committed to those essentials of the Christian faith, and that then there's a lot of fun in trying to explore uh, some of these questions you're going to bring up and how, how they might fit, and I'm not super concerned that we all agree on all of the details of that, but I hope we can at least point toward there being some reasonable kinds of answers to these very important questions. I appreciate you saying that because this is something I, I try to bring up in any sort of conversation with a guest I have or laying out for people a different theological perspective is that this is a, an area where Christians, I hope, would be, be able to develop the practice of having charitable dialogue with each other. You know, my own, my own church that I'm on staff at, people have a variety of perspectives on this, on this subject. And so I think 
a lot of good can come just simply from the dialogue. And that's why I appreciate, you know, BioLogos. I appreciate from the, even just the email exchanges that we have, I picked up on, uh, this isn't, you know, this isn't an organization that's out to, uh, you know, make these polemic arguments and to, you know, as it's popular to say in internet discussions, to own the other side, right? But I, I, I wanted to have this conversation so that people who are wrestling with these sorts of questions could at least understand from an evolutionary creationist perspective how one might answer these questions. And I recognize, too, that there's there are different perspectives on these answers among people that would hold to a form of evolutionary creationism. So maybe we could start off by explaining, I've used that term a couple times, evolutionary creationism. How is that different from a purely naturalistic evolution or even other creationisms like young earth, old earth, or even what's kind of become maybe more popular in Christian circles over the last decade or so, something called intelligent design? How is evolutionary creationism different from those things? Yeah, so we have tried to use that term, evolutionary creation, as opposed to what many people might be more familiar with called theistic evolution. And uh, we've done that for a couple of reasons. One, we believe that God's the creator. So in that sense, we're creationists too. We believe that God created and so we're trying to reclaim and redeem that term creation, creationism, so that it doesn't just mean uh, what young earth creationists have intended for it to mean, which is in opposition to uh, scientific theories that are, that are accepted today. And secondly, theistic evolution seems funny to modify the the scientific position in that way. Does anyone say that they hold to theistic gravity or to theistic photosynthesis? Or in the same way, evolution is a scientific theory, okay? So it often gets used by others in a larger, more encompassing worldview, evolutionism. But that's not science anymore. So what we at Biologos are saying is that we believe that God created and we're saying that we believe the science of evolution is the best scientific explanation we have for how the diversity of life came about. So to contrast that to some of these other positions you brought up, young earth creationism is the position that God created things six to 10,000 years ago and that evolution does not happen, at least at the species or what they want to call the kind level, but that things were created largely in the, in the form that we see them now. Old Earth creationism accepts the consensus in the natural sciences, so things like geology and physics and cosmology, where we have uh, these evidences and theories about the ancient age of the Earth and the universe. So old Earth creationism accepts the, the consensus in the natural sciences, but still does not accept the consensus of the life sciences and biology, that evolution uh, is the best scientific description we have for how life came about. The other one you mentioned, intelligent design, is a little tougher to characterize because within the intelligent design movement, you could find young earth creationists, old earth creationists, and evolutionary creationists. So intelligent design itself doesn't have a position on, say, the age of the earth or even how much evolution uh, may have happened. But rather, it's a position 
that is a particular kind of orientation toward the sciences in that they think beginning with the sciences themselves, we can argue to that there must have been this designer. And they uh, at least officially don't want to even take a position on what that designer or who that designer may be, but rather want to just say from the science itself, we can argue to the fact that there must have been a designer. And so it's not even an explicitly Christian position where these other three, I think, want to all begin with Christian doctrine and saying we hold these truths and these doctrines of, of Christian theism, and then our science is in relation to those things. So uh, that's a first sort of attempt at describing uh, evolutionary creation. Let me say one more thing, particularly about evolution, and then we can get into further details that you want. What do we mean when we say we think evolution happened? Well, there are various uh, levels of evolution or various uh, understandings. The way the term gets used isn't always the same. In some sense, evolution means things change, right? Well, everybody believes that. Everybody accepts that things have changed over time. There are different things alive now than there used to be, right? Um, and many of these groups then will even admit to uh, what they like to call sometimes microevolution, that things adapt over time, species adapt over time. We homo sapiens are taller now than we used to be on average. Uh, you can look at the beaks of finches in the Galapagos Islands and see how those change over time in response to different environmental conditions or uh, lots of other of those kinds of adaptation. But then the next uh, higher level of that, what often gets called macroevolution, is that species themselves, over long enough periods of time, change into different species. And here there's some uh, confusion that there's some, you know, that this is some radically different kind of process where most people in the sciences would say, no, it's the same process. Things change over time, and if you give them enough time, they're going to change enough so that they're very different than what they were a long time ago. And what Biologos would want to emphasize in this regard is that the theory of common ancestry is what we mean when we're talking about evolution. So you pick any two things that are alive on the planet, and if you go back far enough, and for almost all of these things, you have to go back a really, really long way, you'll come to common ancestors of those two things. So common ancestry is the, is the theory of evolution that all life is related. Now, there's another step to understanding evolution that we're not going to take a stand on, and that's that common ancestry came about by these particular mechanisms. There's a lot of debate about those mechanisms within scientific uh, circles, and quite often evolution-denying groups want to uh, take that fact and say, look, the scientists themselves can't even agree on what evolution is, therefore it must not have really happened. What they're glossing over is the fact that those scientists, 99% of them by the last poll that I saw, 99% of them completely accept common ancestry as the, the theory of evolution that life is related. How did it all happen? Let's talk about it. I mean, for a while it was thought perhaps that random genetic mutations plus natural selection is all you need to bring this about. That now is under uh, a fair amount of criticism and, and critique to say there are other factors 
that that go into causing the 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 variation that we find among species and which ones end up surviving and which ones don't. So people need to hear that evolution, as I'm going to use the term, is referring to common ancestry, and that there's lots of vigorous debate about how that happens. And there are you know proposals that have more or less support than others, but we're uh, we're committed to the to the science of common ancestry in uh, in evolutionary creation. And let me say again to make sure that we hear that that's a scientific theory, not some bigger encompassing uh, philosophy of evolutionism. Right, which that would differentiate it between more of the the naturalistic evolution. Right, the the Richard Dawkins variety, the the metaphysical sort of evolution, where now we have a material process, is now then you can transpose that to every other facet of life, and we can explain everything in the universe as simply participating in a purely mechanical, materialistic process in a closed universe. Right? We would not accept that. So the big question when I say we believe God's the creator of everything, and we think evolution is the best scientific description we have for the diversity of life, is how are those two commitments related to each other? And at Biologos, we are firmly committed to that God is involved in this process. We don't think that Homo sapiens emerging from the evolutionary process was a surprise or an accident to God. So I like to say even that God intentionally created human beings in his image. Okay, So that's a theological claim. Now, it's a scientific claim to say we human beings, or maybe more precisely, we homo sapiens, from the scientific perspective, evolved from previous ancestors. And and we do this all the time with other things, too. We can look at the Hawaiian Islands and say, I think God created the Hawaiian Islands, but I can also say it seems we've figured out pretty well the scientific description of that in these lava vents that are coming out, and still to this day, adding landmass. We understand that process scientifically, and our understanding of the science doesn't make us say, oh, I guess God didn't have anything to do with it, right? So we could say the same thing about us as individuals. I believe God knit me together in my mother's womb, right? I think that God create intentionally created me. I think my mom and dad had something to do with it too, and we understand that process pretty well to give a scientific description of how that works. But in those cases, we're pretty comfortable saying we understand the mechanisms by which this works, but that doesn't take away from the fact that we believe God was intimately involved in in bringing this about when we talk in more theological terms. And the descriptions of the mechanical processes, the descriptions of the means by which this stuff comes about is not neutral. Uh, Any way that one would describe it it carries a philosophical and a theological component to it. That's something we went through in that series I did last summer was understanding when we use even language like natural selection. uh, At times it sounds as if though people that would talk about natural selection in the purely naturalistic sense would say, well, there's no agency involved, right? It's a random process. It's interesting. They often will use language simultaneously that philosophically sounds like 
evolution has a telos or it has someone, you know, working a process through it. Now we're getting into the sort of philosophical and theological interpretation of the means by which creation has come about. And that's really what you guys are doing, right? For sure. And this is one of those areas that you mentioned earlier that not everybody's going to agree on the best way to describe this. This gets into some pretty tricky uh, metaphysics and um, not everybody would agree. So, for instance, the, some people in the, in the biologos camp of people that, that accept evolutionary creation would like to describe that telos of evolution in very specific terms to say what happened was along the way God interjected into the evolutionary process, say, certain mutations at just the right time to make sure that beings like us evolved. Other people want to go, yeah, that seems to be blending uh, the scientific discourse and the theological discourse in ways that don't respect the integrity of each of those disciplines and instead want to say, let's talk about science, but let's limit that to show that science itself is a limited enterprise that only answers certain kinds of questions and it can't tell the whole story. So... From its perspective, it might say, these mutations look like they're random, but I can only talk about it from within this very small perspective of what philosophers like to call efficient causes, where there's one thing going in and interacting with something to bring about something else. Whereas when we talk about theology, we're talking final causes. This is where this telos comes from that you, that you refer to. And that there's a different mode of explaining when I appeal to purposes and intentions, so when I say God intentionally created me in his image, that's not a scientific claim that I can dig into and find out the mechanisms. That's a, that's a claim at the level of persons. This is the way of explaining it that I prefer, but again, different people have, have different views on this. A third way of trying to explain how that theological claim and the scientific claim are related is to say God guided evolution by front-loading the process, setting it up so there are these natural sort of laws that we don't fully understand yet, but may eventually, where we'll see that beings like us were inevitable to come out of the, out of the, the evolutionary process. So those are three different ways that I think you can talk about this. And let me, I, I didn't uh, note those first two very carefully. So let me summarize three different ways that you might think about how God and the scientific process of evolution are related. You might say God steps into the scientific process and fiddles with the DNA to cause specific mutations at certain points. You might say, no, my science and my, my theology are different levels of explanation, different levels of description, and I ought not try to force those into one thing, but recognize both are limited and both tell the story from a particular perspective. Or third, I might say God set up the process from the beginning, very intentionally so, and that there are laws of evolution that we just don't fully understand yet, but that once we do, we'll see that creatures like us were, you know, inevitable to come out of the system. So I think those are three ways of uh, that are all fruitful in uh, us trying to sort all this out. Um, and none of them are purely scientific that we're going to solve this whole thing just by the science. Maybe that third way of there actually being other laws in evolution comes closest to that. But 
as you said, you don't ever do science in isolation from these broader metaphysics and explanatory systems. So undoubtedly, people's preferences for each of these are going to be guided by you know, the kinds of metaphysical claims they find most attractive to. I want to come back to those those three different modes, maybe of ex- explanation within evolutionary creationism. But I'm curious before we keep going. You know, you said that you didn't grow up with this sort of mindset. You didn't grow up in an atmosphere, a Christian atmosphere, that taught the uh, common descent of all living things. Was there a particular thing that uh, like pushed you over the line and goes, man, I this. Do you, was there one particular instance? Was there a series of things? Was there a book that you read of, a lecture that you heard that was like, wow, well, I can't argue with this? Because I think that line between is there a, is there, do all living things have, share common ancestry is the key division, right, between a more traditional creationist view, the young earth and old earth, and an evolutionary creationist view. I think that's that's the key difference. And that really seems like, in many ways, it, it brushes up against this common descent of all living things, brushes up against uh, people's most, most usual or most common ways of reading Genesis one in particular, and we could take that into two and three. So for you, was there a particular instance where you said, ah, this is the, this is clear. Like, this is why I believe all living things share a common ancestor. Yeah. So there were two things that were particularly important for me in that regard. Um, The first one on the scientific side of things was coming to a better understanding of genetics and how genetics works. So the evidence for common ancestry is pretty remarkable already if you just look at things like comparative morphology, so how body plans are similar and dissimilar across the animal kingdom and the plant kingdom, uh, for that matter, and see similarities and differences there. It's pretty remarkable when you see the distribution of species around the planet and how those are grouped together in ways that make you say, oh, these look like they're more related to each other here and further related from those over there. And, of course, the fossil record, which has always been a bone of contention, no pun intended there, I guess, uh, uh, on both sides. And Darwin himself, when he was writing this theory, said... You know, he was hoping that one day the fossil record would prove beyond the shadow of a doubt that his theory was correct. And depending on who who you talk to, he was either right or wrong about that. And it turns out that the fossil record is pretty sketchy in many in many places, and it's difficult to uh, have bones fossilize most of the time when an animal dies. It's eaten, and there's no trace of it left. But also, in the the last generation in particular, there's been very impressive fossil evidence that's been uncovered. For these transitional phases. For transitions. That was always the thing that I had heard. You know, here is the checkmate atheist move, right? Was that, well, if there, you know, where are all of these transitional fossils that would connect... The, this species into now becoming the thing that it is now. We would see so much of it, right? And I would, this was part of the apologetic for it that I would learn. And yep. I remember bringing up, in, even in my first philosophy class that I had at a secular university, it was like, hey, you know what? What about these, the lack of transitional fossils? 
<laughs> so do we have more evidence of oh. this? Or <laughs> So just this week, I saw a, a video that's been making the rounds now uh, from an anti-evolution group that's very concerned. What well, you started your introduction by talking about very concerned about people going back to school and going to their science classes and getting duped into, uh, into evolution. And so it's this short video that's very much in the mode of God's not dead of a science class with a teacher up in front talking about evolution and somebody finally raising their hand to object and starts going on this, this list of all of the problems that there are with evolution. And one of those in this series of claims was, where are the transitional fossils? Yeah, we've found a couple, but not even enough to fill up the back of a Prius. To which I was like, please, can somebody please enlighten the folks who keep making this claim of the massive amounts of fossils that have been uncovered that fit into these transitional sequences. I mean, if you just look at the whales, the transition from land mammals to whales, you're not going to fit these in the back of a Prius. There are thousands and thousands of these that are somewhere in between animals walking on land and whales and dolphins and these other uh, sea mammals that you know have still have hip sockets and some of them have still have uh, feet and the blowhole that's out on the snout that's moving slowly up. I mean, there are thousands of these things that have been uncovered. Most people are more concerned about the transitional fossils to human beings, though, right? Because that's what seems to touch uh, at our core identity of who we are. You can go down to the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C., the Smithsonian Institute of Natural History, where they have their Hall of Human Origins now. And there, there's a plaque up on the wall that has a bunch of skulls from these intermediate uh, fossils. And the plaque is that we now have fossils from more than 6,000 individuals somewhere between the time of our last common ancestor with chimpanzees about six million years ago and present-day humans. And these keep multiplying every year. You find more and more and more of these that we say, well, what are you going to do with these? Are they human or are they not? Well, that's the problem with evolution. There's a gray area in there somewhere that, it, that you can make a... Uh, the graph is very impressive when you put the brain size of these fossils we're finding on an axis with the years in which you're, they're found. And you just find this increasing line of the closer we get to us, the bigger brain size you have. I mean, it, what is this if not a transitionary fossil from something that used to be very different to what we are today? Now, all of that was in lead up to say that these are some of the main evidences for evolution but for me personally, it wasn't until I understood the science of genetics that I was like, I don't think you can deny this. So all of those other things I think are very impressive in terms of making a cumulative case for the fact that it looks like things changed over time and that things are related, that life is related. But when you get to understanding the genetics, that is it's such a you know home run that you see the kinds of interrelatedness that you can't just wave your hand and explain away. So some of the, the things that people will talk about are uh, what we might 
call scars in our in our in our DNA. So little pieces of code that you find similar across many different species in ways that you connect them on a on like a family tree to say if say you and I both had a scar in a particular place and the analogy here is that let's say that scars are inheritable across generations too if you find a group of people that all have this scar on their left elbow you say is it most reasonable to think that they all got it individually or that they all inherited it in some more systematic way and among species that we thought we had a pretty good idea of where they all fit on the family tree you start to find thousands and thousands of these genetic scars remember our dna is three billion of those base pairs long so there's a lot of room in there to to find all of these genetic scars that are passed down um, in ways that only make sense by saying, oh, this one must have happened in the common ancestor of these two species because these two have it, but this other one here doesn't. But now those three also have this, this scar that, that you hold in common between those three. So there are thousands of those kinds of things that are just utterly remarkable. It's like in a similar way, right? Like if we were to, if I were to take a family picture with my own children, my parents, uh, my siblings, their kids, that people would be able to identify. Well, it looks like these, by just looking at these features, right, that I can actually see these people share common ancestor together as a family, right? There's clearly identifiable features, right? That's what you're saying. You can look at the genetic history so and go... This, this goes beyond that even though because okay. there's, there's a common response to that point you just made from uh, the evolution-denying groups that are, that's not common ancestry. That's just a common design feature that gotcha. God would have designed those in ways that fit the function that, that they were designed to do. So, of course, we and chimpanzees look a little bit similar because we do similar kinds of things. We can get up and walk around on two legs, at least chimps can for a little while. We have certain cognitive capabilities. Our skeletal structures are the same. So God would just use that same blueprint of, D of DNA for those different kinds of things, the way an auto mechanic doesn't completely rebuild a car with each new generation. You use the one before. And so that's a common response to those kind of similarities that we find. But this genetic evidence goes way beyond that, that it's in things that are not needed for specific functions. So the design part was not, I'm going to design these things so that they function exactly this way. It's just that they happen to be that way for no reason. Uh, for no function. And so then it, the evidence becomes even more overwhelming. One example is the production of uh, vitamin C. Turns out we're not good at it. We can't just eat normal stuff and get our bodies to synthesize vitamin C. We discovered this back during the, the age of uh, big sea voyages, and you put a bunch of people on a boat for months and months at a time when all they eat are like dried meat and hardtack biscuit. They get scurvy after a while because just eating that stuff, you don't get any vitamin C that you need in your body to produce it. And so lots of these people were, were dying from scurvy. But not all the other animals were. You put horses on the boats and they, they did just fine eating that. And how does that work? Well, fast forward to uh, 
understanding how the synthesis works of these vitamins within us. And you find that humans in chimpanzees and gorillas and orangutans, none of them can make their own vitamin C. But you get a little further afield and you find animals that can, horses and dogs and all these things, they do make their own vitamin C. Well, you find one specific place in the DNA that the vitamin C producing gene is defective in us. It doesn't work anymore. Whereas in those other animals, it still does work. And you can see because, again, these, these sequences are thousands of letters long, letters when we print them out on a page, right? That you see the exact same place in other animals' DNA where there's a little change where theirs still functions, but ours doesn't. And you say, well, why would God design it such that we can't make vitamin C, but those other animals can. Well, maybe he has his reasons. But then you go even further and you find animals that are less related to us. A fruit bat, for example. It can't make its own uh, vitamin C either. But it turns out it can't do it for different reasons. The, the mutations are different there because if you go back in the family tree from fruit bats and us primates... Those things could make, make their own DNA, make, sorry, make their own vitamin C. But when you get closer down, now this whole group of animals can't, and these way over here can't. It would be really remarkable if it mutated in exactly the same way in those two very widely separated groups. But what we find is exactly what you'd think if common ancestry is true. These closely related animals that are all apes, probably had a mutation back in their common ancestor group that then filtered down that they can't make vitamin C, whereas the ones further afield had another mutation, but in a different place. You know, And so all of those things just start to fit together in really, really remarkable ways to say, I'm not sure that, that we can reasonably deny that common ancestry happened. There are... Uh, a bunch of articles on the Biologos website about genetics and common ancestry that you can look up to find. Uh, I'm, I'm sure it's not entirely easy to track with just the audio of this, but to see some diagrams of how all of this works. So that was the first thing when you asked what were some important points for me personally. Understanding uh, genetics and DNA and the relatedness of life was super important from the scientific side of things. From the theological side of things, so again, I didn't have some great fear of, oh no, this is undermining my faith, but I did have serious concerns about how does this scientific information relate to what we see in Scripture. I'm brought up and fully committed to Scripture being the Word of God, and I'm not going to do the move where I just say, well, Scripture's just wrong. It's just, you know, these ancient archaic people that they didn't know what they're talking about. I think Scripture's inspired by God. And so understanding how these are connected was super important for me to sort out at some point. And for me, like lots of other people, you already mentioned John Walton, um, reading John Walton's book, The Lost World of Genesis 1, was very eye-opening to me to say, aha, it seems like reading scripture is a little more complicated than just picking up my NIV 21st century English version and reading the words <laughs> off the page. That there are... Uh, ancient Near Eastern contexts that have to be taken into account. And I'm particularly, so I know Walton's views do not have, you know, consensus among all Old Testament scholars, but, and my point wasn't that, oh, John must be right about the particulars of all of this, as much as to say, 
I think John's right that this is a bigger question and it's more complex and that there's room for various interpretations uh, to exist there. And so the one point John makes that I find super helpful in trying to understand how God inspired Scripture and the relationship of the, the ideas that we find in Scripture is that it doesn't appear that God ever in Scripture revealed to that first audience scientific details about things that they themselves had never uncovered and discovered. So the science that's in the scripture is the science of the day of those first listeners, rather than God saying, I'm going to tell you some stuff here that's not going to make sense for 2,000 years, but in 2,000 years, those people that, that know evolution are going to find this really interesting. I don't think that's what what uh, the point of scripture was. So scripture, we have uh, a divine author and a human author. And most times in these conversations, the uh, human author is written out of the story so that it's really just God dropping words down from heaven in some sense. Well, and, and directly to us, too, yeah, which is to so anachronistic and selfish. Ed to understand Scripture as God communicating through a specific culture and in the concepts that made sense to them. So that makes the interpretation of Scripture a little messier and a little harder for us, Right. Um, but it also shows that uh, scientific discoveries of today need not stand in some sort of awful tension with uh, the science of the day back in the time of Christ or in the time of Moses and Abraham. Let's say for a moment that listeners right now, uh, I invite all of you, whether or not at this point you are still in disagreement or you still have questions, to just for a moment, just accept the hypothesis that Jim is presenting here, to accept really what has been established as as close to scientific fact as we really have, especially in the area of genetics, right? If one accepts this picture of reality currently presented in geology, biology, genetics research, life on Earth has been happening obviously much earlier than any sort of historic Adam and Eve. I don't want to get into the questions or debates about historic Adam or not. But what I do want to ask is, all right, so sorts of things that were happening during the 3.5 billion years that life existed before any sort of written history, not all of that stuff would we say is good, right? I mean, what are some of the things that were happening on on the earth, uh, not even just necessarily in the process of evolution, but we can talk about that too. What are some of the things that have been happening for the 3.5 billion years that we could go back and first find what would be the, the origin of life on Earth? Um, so the process of life looks very similar to what it does now, with the exception that we human beings are now spread across the entire planet and affect life in ways that are unprecedented, that had never, that has never happened before. But holding that to, to one side, our influence on it, otherwise the process of life looked very similar. You, you mentioned the origin of life, and I want to be clear that the theory of evolution does not say, here's how the original life came to be. That's a very different scientific question, and it's a big problem scientifically. And at Biologos, we're happy to say, let's keep researching origin of life, what's sometimes called abiogenesis, 
let's keep researching that scientifically. But it's entirely possible that God intervenes and does something miraculous to get all of this, this process started. But once the process is going, what we have are organisms that can replicate themselves. And it turns out that the offspring of any particular organism is slightly different than its parents. You know, we see this today still. Offspring vary slightly from what their parents were like. And then some of those offspring are more successful at reproducing and passing on their genes than others are. That, in a nutshell, is evolution. There's variability from parent to offspring. And then the natural selection side of it is that some are more successful in reproducing than others. Now, what causes that success? Sometimes there are big environmental conditions. If the, uh, the acidity level of the sea goes up dramatically, different kinds of things are going to be able to thrive and reproduce. If the temperature on land drops suddenly, different kinds of things are going to be more successful and reproduce. If there's a new predator that enters an area, certain kinds of things are going to be more successful, namely the ones that can hide or that can run away faster. They're going to tend to have more offspring. And so we have this process, this ongoing process of reproduction, of reproduction and over long periods of time, the ones that are successful are going to contribute their genes to the ongoing gene pool more often and so we have this progression of, of life that we find testified to in the fossil record. Now, I think what you're hinting at in all... Well, yeah, if we were to talk about some of those other processes in less kind terms... <laughs> it's pretty you know, messy and pretty It's ugly. messy, right? I mean, this is, this, is the, this is the theodicy problem that this sort of creates. You know, what contributes to the, the, the likelihood of something actually being able to reproduce? Well, let's take one basic example. You know, you get a, you get a couple of, let's say something as simple as this. You get a couple of deer, you know, a couple of bucks, button heads to compete for the attention of a, uh, of a female in order to reproduce how does one demonstrate that it's more fit for reproducing and gets the attention of the female? Well, it kicks the butt of the other buck. It engages in violence. You know, it may even it's, it may even kill it in the process. That's just one example, but we see it across. And then these adaptations happen to these species, which make them more likely to be able to kill or kick the butt of its competitor, too. Um, so we have a problem on that level. Not only that sort of thing that we might go, ah, that doesn't seem like this idyllic Garden of Eden, paradise, good sort of creation. Then we also, even we go back even to our human ancestors and we know that we've had, you know, hunting, hunting and gathering was the, the primary way that human species existed on the world for, for millions of years, Right. And that sort of process is very violent. You're going out and you're developing these tools to kill something else. So we have problem questions, I should say, on that level. But then we also have like, you know, humans don't even emerge, you know, according to the scientific evidence, they don't emerge till about 66 million years ago. And it's as a result of a... Your number's a little off there. Is it off? Okay. Yeah. Humans... So oh. if we say Homo sapiens, okay, yeah, yeah. So 66 million years ago was the big extinction when the dinosaurs died out. Right, so right. We've got this asteroid that hits, 
And so the, the connection there with what you're talking about is this is the time when mammals, mammals yes, yes. start to emerge. There were mammals that time, but they were all small little rodent kinds of things that it, when they got bigger and got out into the open, the dinosaurs ate them all, right? So when the dinosaurs go extinct, mammals start to flourish. But if we're talking human beings um, or even the, the genus Homo for Homo sapiens, uh, our last common ancestor with chimpanzees is six million years ago, okay. and we get a progression then of these species, um, Homo erectus, about a million years ago or so, Homo sapiens, 200,000 to 300,000 years ago. Your, your point is still the same. But. Right. So I suppose, what it, yes, yeah. No, I'm glad. I'm glad for that clarification and correction. So 66 million years ago, we have this extinction-level event that eliminates the dinosaurs, makes room for the rise of mammalian mammal species, which yep. include our own, the, 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 the creation, if you will, or I don't know what the best word is. <laughs> For, happy to use that okay. creation. All right, for the for the Homo species, including Homo sapiens, that's a brutal way for us to make it out of you know to be on top of the food chain here. This brings up questions for people about whether or not you know the Christian narrative has typically started with an original goodness before any original sin. But if you have animal predation, cataclysmic extinction level events. And, you know, what Darwin called survival of the fittest happening for billions of years, seemingly as long as we can go back in the fossil record or go back in uh, genetic research, we go back and we see things that might not seem good. So when was creation ever good? Yeah, that's that's a great question. And this... Uh is often, you know, referred to as the problem of natural evil. The, you know, the moral problem of evil is more involving our own uh, choices today for our free will, for which we're morally responsible. But if we talk about the problem of natural evil, this is a problem. There's no doubt a problem, and I'm afraid I'm not going to solve it for you on one <laughs> podcast here. But I think there are some things we can say. I think there are some important things to say. And first of all, I'm glad you said according to the Christian narrative instead of according to Scripture, because original sin is a theological interpretation of Scripture, not Scripture itself. You don't find that phrase in the Bible. It's a very important and meaningful concept, which obviously gets at the, the problem that you bring up that you look around um, today and see that everybody sins, you look in the past that it looks like there are similar kinds of behaviors in the animal world for a long time. So that's, that's uncontroversial, that we all sin. Um, then different Christian traditions have grappled with this problem differently. We in the West have generally followed Augustine and his description of original sin in the fall. The Eastern churches, though, read that differently. It was more of an original innocence rather than what I think too often we hear today as an original perfection, right? So God didn't say, I've created this and it's perfect. God said, I've created this and it's good. Okay, so can we grapple with that to start with? First thing I'd want to mention about that is from the biblical narrative itself. Genesis 1, before there's any hint of a fall like we get in Genesis 3, in Genesis 1, we have God creating human beings 
And then the first thing he says to them is, be fruitful, fill the earth and subdue it. We have to at least ask if God wanted the earth filled and subdued, why didn't he create it that way? Mm. So for me then, I think it's totally legitimate to read this portion of scripture as supporting the claim that God didn't create things originally the way he ultimately intended them to be. Even though he said they're good, even very good when they're created. This is very good. Now, can you go fill the earth and subdue it? Because it seems like there's some problems. And then you get to Genesis chapter 2, and one of the first things he does with Adam is to say, it's not good that you're alone right? There's something else that needs to be done. Now, lots of uh, exegetes will disagree on the exact meanings of all these words. What I'm trying to do is to show I think you can be faithful to Scripture and say what God created is good, even though what he created still needed to be added to in some way, still needed some further development, some process that it seems like God was very interested in allowing there to be a process rather than, why didn't God just create us all in a final perfect heaven to begin with? You know, why are we going, well, there must be some reason. Is there anything we can say? And I'm totally sympathetic to the, uh, what's often called skeptical theism position that's like, we don't know. We don't, we, it's, it's really tough for us finite minds to probe the mind of God and say, this must have been God's reason and God's motivation for doing it. But I want to try to say at least some things, right? So your observation that in natural history, we find death, we find violence and destruction. We have predators, we have cancer, we have, we have, uh, uh, fossils of dinosaurs that clearly have malignant tumors on them. So animals were getting cancer and dying from that long, long, long before there were human beings around. So what do we do? Do we say the way we see the world is not the way God created it? And so then I might invoke, uh, I, you know, I have to do a lot of gerrymandering with the scientific details to say it was all perfect. There wasn't any death. There weren't any predators. All the lions ate grass, and then Adam and Eve ate an apple, and then poof, they grew fangs and started chasing other animals. That's really difficult to, to maintain. And it doesn't even for me solve the question of why God made the world in such a way that when Adam and Eve ate a piece of fruit, that it all turned so horrible. I mean, that doesn't seem to get right. God off the hook. No, or the problem, or the problem that I've frequently brought up to people when they have questions about this is that you already have in the cosmos the presence of a a malevolent being in, in Christian or traditional Christian readings, even of Genesis two and three. I mean, where is this deceiving serpent come from? Where's he you come know, from? You know, and so I know many Jewish people don't interpret that text as as having anything to do with any sort of being called Satan, at least in any New Testament sort of way. But this has been the traditional Christian linking of that ancient serpent to the dragon of Revelation. First John says the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, and the devil's been sinning from the beginning. We still have a problem, even before the fall, of a pre-fall fall, right? I mean, there's a 
there are fallen principalities and powers at work and already a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which presupposes the evil is already a thing, right? To even have a knowledge of. Uh, I still, though, think even with those sorts of qualifiers that it, it does, it becomes challenging for Christians to go, is this really like the process that you had in mind? Uh, let's think even a, well, go ahead if you want to respond to that. Yeah, so uh, a couple things here again. And again, this is this is difficult territory we're into, challenging, and not everybody will agree with this, but a few things to at least get out there. Evolution itself is is not inherently violent and death-causing. You don't have to have death to have evolution. All you have to do to have evolution is that offspring vary from their parents and that some of them reproduce more than others. But don't you have to have a survival mechanism, right? I mean, isn't that the... the, the... So what I'm, what I'm saying in regard yeah. to this is evolutionary creation is no different than old Earth creation in this sense, and yeah. that there have been animals around for a long time, and it's not specifically evolution's fault that animals die. If they didn't die, we'd be up to our ears in all of the animals that have ever lived in the history of the planet, right? So death has been there from the beginning, whether you accept evolution or not. But your point that it, it sure seems like natural selection and survival of the fittest introduces this element into this that stands in some tension with uh, our theological principles in this way and calling it good, right? So... One of those options, then, is to say that this isn't the, world, the way God created the world, whether you invoke an Adam and Eve fall that drastically changed everything, or the, as you refer to, as a demonic fall of some sort. If you put that demonic fall way back before the creation of the earth, you've still got the problem, though, of saying, how is God calling this good if somehow the demons and these principalities are responsible for the way we find the world today? We still have to say, well, why did God say this was very good? So that doesn't solve that part of the problem. I'm more attracted to this other option then to say, God made the world this way, and it's good that it is this way. Okay, So not everybody agrees with this, but I think the difficulties and the struggle of the evolutionary process was the only way for God to bring about a species that had genuine moral responsibility like we do. So again, I think God intentionally created human beings. So whether this evolutionary process gives the full explanation or you need God intervening in other sorts of ways, this wasn't a surprise. God created things with the intention that there would be creatures who could love him back and be morally responsible for things. And what we find in some of these lower animals are hints and precursors of what in us is this full-blown moral responsibility. Care for kin, even if that puts you in harm's way. Bonding and friendship between individuals. Altruistic behavior on behalf of a group. A sense of fairness. These are all things that we can find in the animal kingdom right now. And what I'm claiming is that these are necessary components that needed to be in place in order for us to have this moral responsibility. And this is my controversial claim here then. I don't think God could just snap his fingers and make morally mature creatures in one fell swoop. I think that's a contradiction in terms, just like saying God can't make a square circle. 
right? Instead, moral maturity, morally mature beings have to be involved in their own development through choices that they make that help to determine the kinds of beings they are. And that requires being put in challenging circumstances, being allowed to choose and respond. Are we going to respond with selfishness or with love for another? And that brings about something in us. So what I'm trying to push here is that in the same sense that each of us individually might talk about our spiritual journey through the hard times, how we've become the people that we are today, I think we should start talking about the spiritual journey of Homo sapiens. How did we as a species become the kinds of creatures that we are? Yeah, can we talk about that for a moment? Because there's been... This is another challenge, right? You, you, if you move from here is God breathing the breath of life into a handcrafted atom as the first human being, and now you move into this process by which when you, you know, you corrected my math here again, but the 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 first where we see maybe the breaking away of humans from apes would be how long ago? Six to seven million Six years to ago. Seven million years ago. So let's say. If we don't want to include the other predecessors leading up to that, among the Homo species, right? We've got six, seven million years of. Homo is a little after that. So, is it? Okay. Uh, think of it this way six or seven million years ago, there's a population of creatures that are neither chimpanzees nor human beings nor Homo sapiens or Homo neanderthal or Homo erectus or any of these others. Somehow there's a split there. One of those population goes on to become chimpanzees. Another of, of the, that population goes on to become human beings eventually. And there's a lot of debate about this. It's not fully understood. We keep uncovering more and more of these fossils and piecing more things together. Um, but we have, you know, from that original population, now we've got creatures that are starting to stand up on two feet as opposed to walking on four feet, coming down out of the trees, starting to populate different things, becoming hunter-gatherers, developing tools. All of this is, you know, over the process of millions of years, you get to uh, some of the, the transition homo species a couple of million years ago and Homo sapiens by two or 300,000 years ago. So where in that process do humans become human image bearers? Where in that process do we... Fantastic question. You know, so like I wrestle with as I, as I go, okay, well, I don't have to make uh, Genesis fit modern scientific questions. I don't think they have that in purview. So I need to, if I'm going to understand the world, I'm going to have to use the same faculties that I'm using to even make sense of the words in my Bible, which is my reasoning, which is general revelation. I'm going to have to use those same faculties that I use to do math. And those faculties lead me to a world in which we had uh, different human species even at war with each other, right? Like we don't have, Neanderthals didn't win that war. <laughs> But are Neand we're, we're Neanderthals, not image bearers, or are they just moralless animals? And so, you know, what sorts of capacities or characteristics make a human a divine image bearer? Because I think this is one of the the real challenges to evolutionary creationism is feeling like we are losing something in the Christian narrative. Uh, you know, people might be like, "All right, with." this, oh, I had a distorted sense of original goodness in creation. And maybe 
creation is still an ongoing process, right? Maybe it was functioning as it should. I'm fine with that. Okay. But how are humans in any way, shape, or form image bearers? Why is a human image human an image bearer? But you know, the the, the chimpanzee at my local zoo not. <laughs> Fair question and difficult question. And one on which you'll get vigorous debate on several fronts. Scientific front. What were the kinds of capacities that other homo species were capable of? Did Neanderthals have language? This is an open debate. They had some other symbolic activities, and it appears that they had all the necessary physical equipment for speech, the way the larynx functions, and even a specific mutation in our brains that uh, appears to be uh, associated with language. They had that. Did they speak? We, we just don't know. We just don't know. We do know that we were capable of mating with them if you're not from Africa, you probably have 2 to 4% of Neanderthal DNA in you today. Which everyone goes, yuck. Yeah. <laughs> so there's something yeah. going on there that those species were compatible in some sense. But So there, there's debate on the scientific front of just what capacities these ancient homo species were capable of. And then on the theological front, there's vigorous debate of just what it means to be made in the image of God. This capacities view that says this is what it means to be made in the image of God. We have rationality, we have moral responsibility, we have free will, so on. That, I think, is a little less popular among theologians today than a relational view or a functional view of what it means to be made in the image of God, right? So, in other words, it's not just what kinds of things can you do, but what have you been chosen to do? Okay, so this opens up at least two different ways of talking about the onset of the image of God, all at once or gradually, right? So we could go the all at once view and say, here's this evolutionary progression. You have, you have a Homo erectus a million years ago creating some tools and learning to live in hunter-gatherer societies. 500,000 years ago is when we get Neanderthals that come up into Europe and spread throughout Asia and have pretty complex societies, it looks like. 50, 60,000 years ago is when Homo sapiens come up out of Africa and find these other species up in, uh, up in Europe and Asia. Is it possible that at about that time... We have God entering in dramatically and distinctively into natural history and saying, okay, Homo sapiens, you guys have evolved far enough now that you have all the capacities that I need you to be able to have. And so as of this moment, I'm breathing my breath into you, giving you souls, making you my image bearers. And that happens in one fell swoop just like that. I think that's defensible. And then you have Homo sapiens being distinct from all of these other uh, species, some of whom are still around, because God entered into relationship with specifically with them and specifically to give them this function of bearing his image to the rest of the created order. That's the all-at-once view. I wonder, though, whether you can also have a gradual view that says the along this evolutionary development the species becomes increasingly aware due to the increased cognitive abilities 
becomes increasingly aware of the call of God on them, increasingly aware that the kinds of things we had done in the past, maybe we shouldn't be doing. You know, some coming to awareness of the moral law that's written on their hearts. And the way I, the way I try to justify saying this could be a gradual process is that sure seems to be the way it happens in every one of our lives individually. Or we look at our kids and say, at what point do they become morally responsible for what they've done? Well, that's pretty tough to say at this day, you know, they were... Instead, what we do, we hold them responsible for certain things when they're 21 years old that we didn't hold them responsible for when they were 16 years old, that we didn't hold them responsible for when they were 10 years old, that we didn't hold them responsible so when they were two years old. But instead, we hold our kids responsible appropriate to the level of their own cognitive awareness and abilities. Could God have done something similar with the progression, the evolutionary progression, where it's, okay, you guys are starting to be able to sense my presence here. This is my call on you. Later on, I'm going to reveal myself in even bigger, more dramatic ways that you're going to be able to handle, whether that's physiologically or culturally. And later on, I'm going to give you even more when I send this guy Jesus to you, this guy, when I send my son (laughs) Jesus to you and to give the full revelation of who I am. And so even in Scripture, we see this evolution, if I may, this evolution of God's call on human beings and what he wants them to do. And there are moments along there where God intervenes and does something dramatically, but we also see a progression over the long stretch of time. So it's a calling in telos, then, more than a original state of being an image bearer? Is that what you're suggesting? Like, the the call... Humanity is an image bearer in so far as they participate in God's vocational call that He's uh, set aside or set apart humanity from from the other species on the world. I mean, in some ways, and I'm just kind of spitballing live here. I haven't thought thought this through, but in many ways, that does sound similar to the biblical narrative, in that you have a particular people in Abraham, a calling of Abraham, and a particular people among the nations to fulfill a vocational call in the world. I think there could be some overlap there, but I do think there's also still the challenging question of the process by which they became at the top of the food chain. Was that a God-blessed process? Or is it simply, you know, insofar as they act in accordance with the end telos that he has designed for them because we came, you know, we don't have Neanderthals around in at least in some large part because we've killed them off. Right. So. That is right. Yeah. And I'm always a little puzzled when people say God would never use a process that has suffering and death to achieve what he wants. (laughs) The most distinctive and definitive episode of our faith is the gruesome death and then resurrection of Jesus Christ. Couldn't God have come up with some other way of reconciling us to himself? Well, maybe. But the way he did it shows that suffering and death are on the table as legitimate means for achieving a desired end, right? Some theologians talk about that as the cruciform nature of reality, that God has set things up 
so that suffering and death lead to resurrection and new life. Unless a grain of wheat falls, right? And God showed that he himself was willing to endure that. God himself said, I will subject myself, my only son, to suffering and death. So maybe we see, and I, I, again, I don't claim that this somehow solves the whole problem right, of, of right. evil. What I'm trying to do is to throw out some ideas, some pointers, that we find some resonance, some consonance with what we're committed to theologically already with what we're discovering in the natural world. And I think just maybe we could see that it's okay for us and our ancestors to go through some suffering and death in order to become what God wants us to be. Okay, so Darwin framed the process of evolution in largely negative language, right? Using words like struggle and survival. You know, I compared this in that previous series to, you know, a different interpretive lens, like a contemporary of Darwin, when William Paley looked at all of nature and said it was a a myriad of happy creatures, you know, living in balance. Uh, But over the last couple of decades, more and more attention has been given to something called biological altruism as an important mechanism in evolution. What is that? And how might that affect the traditional Darwinian narrative? And in some way, is that, are you hinting at that's perhaps the, the vocational call of humans is, are we called to reject those more base animal instincts of competing for sexual selection of our struggle to survive coming at the cost of us being willing to murder the guy competing with us for that girl, right? Uh, And instead that there's a different mode of uh, different mode by which humans are supposed to maybe even reorganize the material world through this altruistic process. That's a big question. Maybe could you start by giving us a maybe just even a definition for those people that, like me, don't have a lot of science background. What is this biological altruism? Yeah, so I'm not an expert in this area. So let me uh, push you to uh, experts because there's a lot of work that is going on on this right now. And there has been a fundamental shift from the Darwinian understanding that each of us as individuals is out for our own success and reproduction, getting our own gene pool out there, and that's what success is. If I can procreate and pass my genes on, I've been successful. And this has been hugely influenced by people like Richard Dawkins and his book, The Selfish Gene, that tries to cast the whole of evolutionary theory as our genes are selfish, they're going to reproduce at the expense of other people's genes. And that's just what it is. Okay, so the shift in this altruistic theory is that it sure looks like the success, the the current organisms that we find have been successful in reproducing largely, not entirely, but largely because they were willing to cooperate not just compete against each other, but to cooperate. So even when we see the progression of life, what we see over time is a progression of cooperation. So start with a single-celled organism. The next big step was multicellular organisms. So now it's just not one cell competing against another cell. It's, hey, if we join together, we're going to be more successful. Now, there's still competition of those 
that have joined together against other ones that have joined together. But you start to see that joining together is an advantage. And then from multicellular beings that are reproducing asexually to sexual reproduction. Now, again, I've got to join together, literally. I've got to cooperate with another individual in order to propagate my own genes. I can't do it on myself. And from sexual reproduction to groups that evolve together, group selection, so groups that that form these social bonds to each other were the ones that became most successful. And we see this in things like ants and bees. But by the time you get to apes, and then when you get to human beings, the cooperation is off the scale, off the scale of anything else in the kingdom, in the animal kingdom, of the kind of cooperation that was necessary. So, for instance, and this hits very close to home right now, we have a son and and daughter-in-law who are expecting their first baby, our first oh, grandchild on the way. Human reproduction, we got these big brains. That means we have to be born very early in the developmental cycle in order to get those big heads out the birth canal. That means they take a lot of care. A couple of years ago, so I'm sitting here in my, in my home office and there's a little woods right outside. A couple of years ago, my wife were here and we saw a deer walk by, sit down in the grass, give birth to a fawn, and get up and both of them just walk away. That little fawn was born and 15 seconds later was standing up, walking, following its mother. Doesn't work that way for human beings. There's a lot of intensive care that is required. And in order to do that, we had to have societies where there were people helping each other, right? So in our evolutionary development, grandmothers became enormously important in propagating our species. And what that means is they are investing in other individuals for their own good, not just for their individual good, but for the good of the greater thing. So, so again, we can tell the story and there's a lot of death and there's a lot of suffering and competition, but there's also the development of this cooperative structure that just maybe, and with further research in this, just maybe we're going to find that the kind of beings we are is just as much a result of those forces of learning to cooperate with each other, learning to think of the other as a distinct self that's worthy of certain kinds of protections even. And that that evolutionary story needs to be told more often as one then that fits pretty well with us saying God desired to bring about creatures that were capable of agape love. And it even seems as if this new discipline of sociobiology is highlighting cases in which things in the animal kingdom, not just humans, but things in the other domains of the animal kingdom, will sacrifice their own life right. even if that seems to go against the two base urges that uh, from the Darwinian, traditional Darwinian perspective, are what's driving evolution, survival and the passing on of my genes. So for the example of, let's say a bird detects a predator, we have birds that will give off a, a resounding call to the rest of the birds in the area saying, there's a predator, there's a predator, which has now just heightened the possibility that that bird that gave off the call is going to die, it's not going to survive, it's not going to pass on its genetic code. And yet, 
it still does it nonetheless. There seems to be, as you said, perhaps a, a cruciform way of, of nature. Is the Christian eschatological vision of the lion lying down with the lamb and swords being turned into garden tools a, a vision of a completely altruistic global ecosystem? Yeah, that's that's a good question. And again, people are not all going to agree. I might point your listeners to a, a podcast episode we did on the Biologos podcast with a theologian named Bethany Soleretter, who wrote a book on animal suffering. And the eschatological sense of this is a really important piece for her understanding of the process of death and pain and where all that is headed. One of the, so where, you know, we want to be committed to God being fair, God giving everything its opportunity to flourish. And when we see in the natural world that that doesn't often happen, there is a theological tradition. This isn't just a a post-evolution innovation, but there's a theological tradition that says all created things will ultimately have the opportunity to thrive in the kingdom of God. And one of the big questions is the predator-prey relationship. Does that mean that lions in the, in the new kingdom get to eat and devour stuff to fulfill their own personal telos? Or does that change somehow and that lions lying down with lambs and eating grass becomes the way of the new, of the new order of things? What Bethany Soleretter does is to suggest, and this is all speculation, right? right? We're right. trying to mm-hmm. speculate based yep. on some things we're committed to. Mm-hmm. But she speculates and says those very urges and desires in human beings that in the past led to us killing each other over a mate have now found a more healthy expression in sports, in violence that's controlled and conducted according to rules. Now, of course, there's still the other kind of violence around, (laughs) but we've found an expression of those very necessary urges and desires that made us who we are, but we've found a, a healthier way of giving vent to them, of expressing them. That's amazing. I was just thinking of that. Could the same (laughs) thing happen for lions where those Mm. urges and desires that made them who they are, that their proper flourishing would need some sort of release of that, could find a way to do that without having to kill and tear apart lambs. That's a speculative. <laughs> as as someone as someone who grew up in the Detroit area, I would say um, our lions hardly ever killed or beat anyone. <laughs> so maybe they're already living out that eschatological vision. That's so interesting. I was, Good you know, for them. Good for them. <laughs> I was uh, I was at my son's football practice yesterday and uh, while I was sitting there I was kind of reviewing some of the notes for today's discussion and I was thinking about, you know, it dawned on me this what are they doing out there? You know, they're running into each other. Um, they're competing. Is this tapping into, but in a healthy way, a more healthy way than, you know, actually slaughtering each other to be, you know, selected by a mate. Now he's, he's only 11. So I hope mate selection isn't on the radar, but I know it will be soon. And I'm not looking forward to that talk. (laughs) Um, <clears throat> you know, there's so many questions, so many more questions that that we could we could we could touch on um, in our limited time. Though there are just a few others. If you have the have the time, Jim, I want to bring up a couple others that I know are probably as people are listening, burning questions that listeners are having. So there's this new, perhaps theodicy challenge, and you've. I think in really helpful ways, attempted to reframe that theodicy with the challenges of this, 
world that was fairly violent, that had cataclysmic events happening on it, and to maybe help reframe that. Uh, there are some good questions about how a good God could use such violent and sometimes cataclysmic processes for creation. I've heard some theologians, like here in the Twin Cities, Greg Boyd, for example, has thrown out the possibility that perhaps, you know, fallen principalities and powers like Satan had long ago corrupted the process of creation. Do you believe there's a cosmic struggle struggle that makes itself manifest in the evolutionary process? Or do you think one of the other three explanations that you give us gave us towards the top of the podcast are, are a better way of understanding why this particular process? Yes, there's a lot of altruism. There's a lot of that. But, you know, the bird signaling to other birds that a predator is coming is still because a predator is coming. Uh, there's... And maybe that's, we don't even look at that as evil. Maybe that's just the way of the world is supposed to work. But it does seem pretty gory on a gut level. Our children turn away when we're watching something on the Discovery Channel and it's a, you know, a, a wolf hunting, a, a pack of wolves hunting a deer and they catch it. They turn away. They go, oh, please, no. You know, maybe they're wrong. You're always rooting for the deer in that. You're always rooting for the deer. For the wolf. <laughs> That's right. So what do you think about that That suggestion? Could it be possible that you know, the process of evolution has been corrupted in some way by fallen principalities and powers? Yeah, I, I think that's a view that is worthy of serious discussion and consideration. I put it into the category, though, um, when we were talking about theodicy earlier of my saying, do you say that this is not the way that God created the world, but that something happened that made it this way? Or do you say, this is the way God created the world, and it's good this way, and how do we reconcile? So I find myself myself in that second category. But I think you can go the Greg Boyd way. Um, the, the concerns that I have there, though, are, okay, so let's posit a uh, demonic fall way back before the creation of the earth, probably before the creation of the universe. Then we still have to say this is good. This is what God created, and this is good, even though it's actually the result of what God is trying to do, but is being thwarted by these demonic principalities. That's problematic to me to say that what we actually have is the result in the natural world. That that we act what we actually have in the natural world is the result of God and Satan duking it out and God not really getting what God wants out of it, but that had to settle for some lesser mm. kind of created order. I can so see that. where that may even feel, I can see where that may even feel in some ways similar to the old, the old Gnostic heresy, right? That you have, um, you know, this is this fallen God or this lesser God, this was the materials that he had to work with, right? Um, right. So I can, I can see where some might be a little bit weary of that. Okay, well, what do you think, uh, just in, as we wrap up here, Jim, uh, how does this, how does evolutionary creationism actually affect the Christian narrative? So let's take the traditional way in Protestant circles, in particular evangelical circles, the narrative is told, four-phase story, right? Creation, fall, redemption, restoration of all things. How does maybe this understanding affect, all right, 
Well, creation might have always, as far as we can say, had these pretty violent processes, these processes that in in human moral terms, we might even say were like sinful happening among human species. We get to Adam and Eve. We're not, we haven't really talked about what that's all about. I don't know if we have time today to unpack, you know, that entirely. That'll probably need to be another podcast. Sorry. Uh, maybe I can get you back on because I know people are going to go, all right, what do we do with that? But in the traditional narrative, right, the traditional meta narrative, it's Adam and Eve's fall, which brings about the desecration of creation, the dysfunction of creation. And we then need, because now of this sin that we've either inherited in the more Augustinian sense, or maybe even in the Eastern sense, this sickness that we've been given, we need a God-man to redeem us and step into the story, and he saves us. It's not by anything that we can do, right? Um, it's totally this work of Christ on the cross in his incarnation, death, resurrection. In what ways does evolutionary creationism, does it reframe that story in any way? Does It, it, it challenges it for sure. And a couple of things that I'll toss out there, and probably too quickly to be of any satisfaction to your listeners, but That's fine. I'll toss them out there anyway. Um, there's disagreement among theologians, not just people who are influenced by the sciences, but among theologians. Was Christ's coming plan B? Was this something that God said, oh, it didn't go the way I wanted it to, so I guess now I'm going to have to send my son as a redeemer <laughs> into the world. This was plan B. Some people will say that, and it fits better with the narrative you described of if God creates everything perfect in the way he wants it to be forever and ever, as long as people don't sin, that's just what's going to go on forever and ever. That fits with, but then humans goofed up. So God had to do something to get them back to where they were. So sometimes, at least in Reformed circles, that's original righteousness, fall, redemption, glorification, you know, ultimately. What the evolutionary narrative forces us to reframe a little bit there is when we talk about original righteousness, what do we mean because, as you note, there were behaviors going on even before human beings that if humans were doing them, we'd call them sin. That was going on a long time before humans were around. Chimpanzees war against each other, and they rape, and you know they do the kinds of activities that if we were doing it, we'd say that's sin. Is it sin for them? That's hard for me to say. So my, when my kids were growing up, our neighbor's dog bit my son one time made a great big welt on his leg, caused it to swell up. Now, we discipline the dog. We make sure it's tied up. It can't do that again. But we have a fundamentally different reaction to that than if it had been my neighbor who bit my son. <laughs> right? <laughs> then we would have said there's something wrong here beyond just needing to restrain. There's, you know, So the exact same behavior when it's done by a moral agent has a different moral weight to it than if it's done by organisms that don't have moral responsibility. So I wonder, I, and here again, people are going to disagree about this, even within the evolutionary creation camp, but I'm more comfortable talking about original innocence and that there's a progression instead of this created perfect 
ball. So sorry, your audio yeah. can't see what I'm doing with my hands <laughs> here, but kind of a V shape that's that's original righteousness, perfect to fall and then being brought back. Instead, it's original innocence that these creatures didn't know. They were not yet morally responsible. God entering into relationship with them, though, makes them aware that these things that have been going on ought not to be going on anymore, and that God reveals law to them, and then ultimately God reveals his son to them, the perfect revelation of God. And in that sense, then, the incarnation is not plan B. It's This is designed from the foundations of the universe for God to become flesh among these people, to show them how to live, to be a sacrifice for them, to bring them to the point. So instead of this V-shape, we have, well, I don't want to say just this continuous progression because that gets us off into some other kinds of process theology yeah, or something. Right, and that's not right. what I mean. I mean that there's a progression of us becoming aware of sin, becoming responsible for sin, needing a savior of God progressively revealing himself to us in ways that cause us to increasingly become the kinds of people that he's called us to be. Mm. I'd throw in on top of that, too, I mean, to answer a little bit of my own question, just so that listeners aren't left totally in the dark in my own thoughts on this. We also need ontological union with God if we're going to be forever people, because it doesn't seem like we are biologically wired. We, we're clearly not biologically wired, even even in the, you know, more traditional, or I don't want to say traditional, but in the young earth readings of of of, of Genesis 2 and 3, yeah, there's really no indication that Adam and Eve were born inherently immortal. We have this tree of life in the garden, which they're intentionally kept from because they would then become immortal. So we can't exist in this constant state of union with God in the perpetual bliss of his kingdom, his full eschatological rule and reign without a real union to God. And I think one thing that we can still hold on to, and this is this is historic Orthodox Christianity. It may have maybe lost its, um, this particular emphasis may have lost its way a little bit in evangelical circles, but, you know, God, the, the, the Orthodox Church, Eastern Orthodox Church, for example, would frequently bring up this phrase that God became a man so that man might become, and not in essence, but become God, participate with God forever in union with him. So Athanasius, yeah, Athanasius. Yep. And then you have to, so you have to have a a fully God man in order for humanity and the new nature of human beings to be united to God. So I don't think anything gets lost there. I do think though, the, the challenge still remains right about the theodicy problem. I think we still would need to go and talk maybe at another time about Adam and Eve. I will just throw in real quick, probably my own perspective as it stands right now, is I still, even in having no problem with uh, Homo sapiens being around for a much longer time than six to 10,000 years, I also have no problem with, among those people, God picking a vocational couple to start a particular vocational call in the world that are real historic people. I, I personally have no problem with that and that they're actually... There's nothing in the science that would contradict that. Right, and I have no problem with them being called to it, and then they screw up their calling, because that's actually Israel's story too, right? They're given a place, they're given a vocational call on that place, 
they run away and rebel from that calling, they get banished from the place, you know. And this makes a whole lot of sense if you're living possibly in the 6th century BC and you're hearing this story on the shores of Babylon, this Genesis 2 and 3 story. It makes a lot of sense and it actually helps me not be so selfish in my reading. So I just want to throw that out there if readers or listeners, I should say, are going, all right, how do you piece this together? That's one possible option I'd throw out. Last question for you, Jim. Thank you. You've been really gracious with your time. I'd really love to do this again because I know I'm going to get a bunch of follow-up questions from listeners. It's so much fun to do this. I think this is one of the most important areas of Christian reflection. I do believe I would throw out, I think this uh, very likely becomes, I don't think it is in many evangelical settings, though I will say this, I don't know of a major accredited seminary that would, um, you know, like uh, that wouldn't have someone on staff there <laughs> that that holds to to this position, even in evangelical circles. I went to a very evangelical conservative seminary. Um, I would say most of my professors there were evolutionary creationists. So, but I, I do think the change that this is going to happen over the next 10 years is this becomes a more popular viewpoint. These questions will continue to emerge. So I'm glad we're having this continuing discussion. Final question I'll ask you is, you know, what would you say to, uh, what would you say to those people that are, hearing perhaps the responses you've had to some of my questions. I brought up quite a few challenging questions, but in your mind, what sorts of advantages are there to believing in this model of explanation instead of both the naturalist explanation and the young earth explanation? Well, the main advantage it has is that it's true. (laughs) (laughs) It has that going for it. I say with some jest, but I actually right. believe it. You know, right, I think right. this is where the evidence leads. And but so would the others. It's okay. So it's really hard for me not to emphasize this point. Okay. The only way you can get science to fit with a young Earth position, or even with an anti-evolutionary old Earth position, is to start with a very particular interpretation of Scripture and say, I am unwilling to let my interpretation be affected whatsoever. Now, notice I'm not saying that you shouldn't start with Scripture. I absolutely believe you should. But I can't say that my interpretation of Scripture or my denomination's interpretation of Scripture is absolutely certain. I know many people, many of whom I call friends, who don't accept the evolutionary viewpoint and are deep into the science of it, But almost inevitably, the people who are deep into the science of it start with a position on the interpretation of Scripture and say, I am absolutely committed to human beings being created separately from the animals. Therefore, I have to go to the science and find ways to justify my position. And science is pliable enough and flexible enough that you find little anomalies and you try to exploit those and say, see, the science isn't as settled and as certain as they've led us to believe. But that's the only way you can do it. The only way you can do it is go to the scientific record, having already firmly decided this is what I need to be able to find here. 
Okay, so I'm emphasizing this point that the evolutionary creation position does not have that difficulty. When you go to what we like to talk about is God's second book, God, the two books model, the book of God's word in scripture that's revealed to us, and the book of God's world or the book of God's works, where we find through the kinds of processes we think he's ordained us to do, to go out and use our use our brains, use our reason to figure out the way things work. There we find this very clear testimony to the way God has worked over these vast stretches of time. So the evolutionary creation view, in my view, is that it is the best way of reconciling what we find in the world with what we find in Scripture. Um, this long discussion, a lot of what we talked about today was related to theodicy. I hope it's not uh, required of the evolutionary creation position to provide the definitive solution to the problem of evil. It's all on you guys, no pressure. Before it can be accepted because nobody else has done that either. None of these positions give us, oh, yep, this is why everything is bad, you know, and, and nobody has any problems with that. Now, having said that I can't provide this definitive solution to it, I think... The evolutionary view on theodicy is a better explanation than the ones that pin all of evil on Adam and Eve eating a piece of fruit or that pin all of evil on some. I think it gives a better understanding of who God is, of the God we see testified to in Scripture, of how he relates to the world around him, to the people, and how he joins with his creation in bringing about what he wants to ultimately see created. So I find that more satisfying, uh, even in that theological sense. And then um, it fits, you know, it's there. So I, again, I did philosophy of science and we always talk about like Thomas Kuhn and the structure of scientific revolutions and paradigm shifts. Understanding evolution within my Christian faith is a paradigm shift. So it's not so easy as just saying, here's some scientific evidence that I plop down on the table things evolved, get used to it. And it, it involves a restructuring of a lot of these things, and it doesn't happen overnight to, to fit that into the way I think about the world, the way I think about God and the Bible. But when it does, when I work through those issues, when I continue to have conversations like this and interact with people at this pretty deep level of trying to sort out what some of the tension points are, I find personally that it creates an overall more coherent and satisfying paradigm that takes into a into account all of these things that I'm concerned to take into account. Scripture, the Christian tradition, reason and experience from the natural world and all of those things. I find it makes a more satisfying position. Not everybody agrees with me. I know that. And I'm happy if those other people who don't agree with me can at least recognize and see, well, I don't agree with you, but I'm starting to see at least why you might hold to the things that you do. And I don't think you're as crazy and as much of a heretic as I originally thought you were. You don't need to be burned at the stake, Jim. Welcome into Christian fellowship with the rest of us. I'd be thrilled for that to be the response. What about for the few naturalists that I do think tune into this from time to time? What if they're listening going... I believe all this stuff. It just seems like you're just lumping God into the whole thing. You know, like why, 
why not just simply go with the naturalistic? Why not just go with the Richard Dawkins version of the story? Why is evolutionary creationism in some way an improvement from that? I don't think that science on itself answers the questions that I'm most interested in in all of this. Science might be able to tell where we came from in this naturalistic sense, but it doesn't tell me why I'm here. It doesn't say these are the kinds of things that you ought to do rather than just here are the things to do if you want to just survive and pass on your genes. It doesn't give me uh, any appreciation for beauty that's in the world. It doesn't. So we talk about the problem of evil as being difficult for us theists, but the problem of evil, how about the problem of goodness? If I'm just a scientific naturalist, how do I even talk about what it is for something to be good in this sense, for morality as a whole? I might try to give an explanation for morality, but in the words of Dawkins, it ends up being something like, yeah, or I think this was actually Daniel Dennett, that morality is just a fiction that's fobbed off on us from our genes in order to help us survive a little bit better. Is that all morality is? Is that the best answer they can give to a question that's so deep and fundamental to who we are? So I don't think that position is satisfying. Well, then it's also unreasonable. Right? The whole thing doesn't make sense. It collapses in on itself when the very process is. If we were in a closed universe, I've talked about this before. If we're in a closed universe of cause and effect, cause and effect, and we are nothing more than the privileged apes to observe it, I can't feel certain that my very observations are not observations that have simply just been faded to me. It might even just be to my evolutionary advantage then, right? It might help me survive. Right. Believe a right. fiction. There's, there's no... I, this is a really interesting philosophical uh, discussion, but whether, whether believing true things is an evolutionary advantage or not, it's not a... It's not a compelling case to make to say, yeah, I have to be able to to learn true things about the nature no. of physics or chemistry. Do I really need those things? No, I don't think you do. And so the evolutionary process itself is not necessarily a truth-conferring process on us, right? No, certainly not. Yeah, even those those things which we've had hardwired into us, it's clear that doesn't necessarily lead us to truth, right? This is why we have things like anxiety disorders in many ways is because those systems were very helpful for us in keeping us free from predators. And now we don't live in a world where we're surrounded by predators all the time, but those systems are still there. And yet they can be hacked in ways to make us believe things about reality that that aren't true. So... Well, Jim, again, listeners, I know you probably have a million more questions. If you do, you could leave a comment. Uh, you can reach out to me on, on Twitter. That's certainly a great way to get a hold of me if you have follow-up questions in hopes that maybe I can get around to a second conversation with Dr. Jim Stump at some point in the near future. But if that doesn't happen very soon, he's a busy guy. Uh, they also have this website called, called what, Jim? <laughs> So biologos.org is where you'll find our main website where you can find lots of articles. We have a blog that we post new things a, a few times a week. Lots of uh, other uh, more evergreen articles that we call our common questions section. And you can also, through the website, find a link to our podcast where we get into some of these sorts of questions with other people, too. Our podcast is called Language of God. So find it at Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. That's right. That's right. I've heard good conversations happen on there. Again, 
Uh, you can check out all of these. I'll provide these links in the description to this podcast below. Again, I'm very thankful for the time that you've afforded me today, Jim. It's been a really profitable conversation, and I hope that we can keep the dialogue going uh, some more in the future. Thanks, Paul. All the best to you and uh, your work here. It's important stuff. Well, that conversation was a total blast for me. I loved unpacking these questions. There's still many, many more. I know in nearly two hours of conversation, we didn't even scratch the surface of some of the things that I know are burning in your hearts to have answered. Maybe we can do it again with Dr. Jim Stump another time. Certainly isn't the end of this conversation. We'll certainly get other guests on in the future to talk about these issues relating to science and theology. But if you have questions in the meantime, reach out to me on Twitter. It's at Paul Anleitner. You can also leave a comment if you use the Podbean app. Uh, I also want to invite you to become a member on Patreon. Patreon is the platform I use to fund the work I'm doing, but also to create a community of people that are serious about engaging these ideas. There's bonus content that I release there for Patreon members, opportunities for more personal Q&A, and other fun stuff there as well. I also want to invite you guys to please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. Those reviews are immensely helpful. They help people find this podcast. I don't spend money on advertising or do anything like that. So it's all word of mouth and reviews and a bit of the fortunes of the internet algorithms as to whether or not people find and discover these sorts of conversations. So if you think that they are helpful, if they've been helpful to you, I hope they are. That's why I'm doing this. You can subscribe, of course, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. You can leave reviews elsewhere too. That certainly is fine. But Apple Podcasts right now is still the number one platform for people listening to podcasts. And of course, you can also share the episodes that you enjoy with friends and become members of the Deep Talks Patreon community. Links are provided in the description to this podcast. Links for my Patreon page, but also for all of the uh, pertinent BioLogos website information that Jim had talked about. Well, again, I appreciate and love having these sorts of conversations with my guests, but even more, even more than that, I enjoy having the follow-up conversations with you guys. So please reach out to me. I'd love to engage in conversation together. And until next time, we'll talk again soon.